0: Please stay, keep, remain standing if you are able. Um, this morning, it is good to be with you, uh, you. As you heard Mark say, my name is Gary uh, Goodrich, and I'm a pastor at Heartland, and I bring our greetings from Heartland Community Church uh, to you. Uh, we pray often for the work here in Andover and for Kirk the Plains, uh, and we're thankful for Rick and, and countless others who have given their time and their energy if you have a Bible, let me invite you to open to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. First Corinthians chapter 3. If you want to follow along in one of the Pewback Bibles, you can find that on page 953. And this morning we're going to be reading from, we're going to read verses 1 through 23. So we're going to read the chapter in its entirety. Again, 1 Corinthians 3, 1 through 23. This is God's holy word given to us. Are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants to whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted Apollos water, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field and God's building. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold or silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day it will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each has done. If the work that anyone has built on a foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Do you not know that you are God's temple, and that God's Spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, and that they are futile. So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours. And you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. This is God's holy word given to us in love. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Let's go to our Lord for a time of prayer. Would you begin this morning? Father, as we approach your word, Lord, we do so asking that you would illuminate, teach it, help us to understand it and apply it. Father, let us not be people who merely gain information, but let us be people who are transformed. We ask that you would open the eyes of our heart and give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and wills to obey. That You might be glorified in that your people, and those who do not yet know you might see the hope and the beauty and reality found in King Jesus. So, Father, may I decrease and may you increase, that you would get all the glory and honor you deserve. In Christ's name, amen. Well, again, it's good to be with you this morning. Uh, 1 Corinthians 3 is a, is a sermon text that, that I worked through uh, over the last several weeks and months, and it, it, I think it's a text that is pivotal for our time. It's pivotal for our time, not only really in the church, but I think even in the broader world, there's some really good applications here that we want to think of. But before we kind of jump into that, it reminded me of a, of a story uh, from when my wife Whitney and I were living in St. Louis, Missouri. We had gathered together for an event with a group of our friends from a church, and, and like so many, the night was going along swimmingly. We were gathering together, we were having fun and conversating and laughing, and And like so many social gatherings that perhaps maybe you have even had or been a part of, there was a new face in the crowd. There was somebody new that had joined us, and and the conversations that were going on, and I overheard one in particular conversation that went a little something like this. Who are you? Who are you? Tell me a little bit about you. Where did you go to high school? That last question perhaps strikes some of you as a bit odd, perhaps even a bit silly, a question of where, where you went to high school. I mean, we're, we're commonplace questions like, tell me about yourself, tell me who you are, but, but where are you went to high school? But Wendy and I quickly found out in our four years in St. Louis that this was a very pivotal question, and the way you answered it, because it was kind of a gatekeeper question, the way you answered it mattered a whole heck of a lot. Because when you answered it, if you said, I, I, went, to, I went to Francis Howell, or I went to DeSmet, you know, Jesuit High School, or I went to uh, any place of these, like Parkway, as soon as you answered it, people who were from St. Louis began to put you in the proper social strata, mm-hmm. and they thought they knew everything about you. They had you pegged down, they kind of had you figured out. And, and, I, and it, again, I say this to you, and, and for us here in Wichita, or maybe who didn't grow up in a culture like that, we think, well, that's pretty silly. But if you think about it, and you stop and get, and realize how often we ourselves do this in our own settings, right? it maybe looks a little bit different, but we ask people questions all the time. Where do you work? Are you married? Not married? Do you have kids? No kids? What about school? Do you homeschool? Do you send your kids to private school? And the ever-important question for some of us here, are you a KU fan or a K-State <laughs> fan? I heard this morning in one of our classes that somebody said that there was a person from K-State so they knew you could trust them which I wasn't quite sure I understood fully but I guess that means if you went to KU or WSU you are not trustworthy I don't agree with that but just for what it is and as we get more comfortable with the people around us perhaps maybe some of you just go straight for questions like this you go for more weighty questions and you begin to ask questions like this tell me what you believe about politics or what you believe about this particular topic in politics? What do you believe about how you should raise or parent your children? What do you believe about how you should school your children? What, what do you believe about the Christian's role in culture? What do you believe about the relationship between the church and the state? And here we begin to find and unpack sometimes subtle differences, but oftentimes not so subtle differences. We begin to find that we begin to be a little bit different from those around us, and oftentimes we begin to find ourselves different from even those whom we share the same creed and faith with. And if we're not careful, what often ends up happening, as President James Madison has said, is it leads us to have an, an inflamed passion, an inflamed passion that, if left unchecked, becomes this mutual animosity between one another, the more interest in the common good. An inflamed passion that, if left unchecked, turns into an animosity It becomes our driver. And to use Madison's language, this division, this, this mutual animosity, it shows up oftentimes. And as I said, this is a text that's applicable for the world. If we were to talk about the world and, and maybe the lack of, to use the word, civility in the world right now, I think we can all agree that, man, we, we really have seemed to lost, have, have lost our grip on how to even have a conversation with one another. We're a divided world. But if we look inward for a minute and look at the church and we think about this division and mutual animosity, it shows up in our walls too. It shows up in the peer groups and people we choose to be our friends or the people that whom we choose to equate with. Perhaps they, they agree with us or think more like us or they make us more comfortable. It happens in the people that maybe you choose to sit with on a Sunday. It happens in all kinds of ways. And for some of us, more than others, it happens when we get behind our keyboard. And we get to type away. And as Jonathan Haidt, a social psychologist, has said, we often use our keyboards and our platforms to, to publicly shame Someone with whom we don't agree while simultaneously broadcasting our own perceived v- virtue and loyalty. You see, division and animosity, this question, it shows up in our church, as these realities show up in our church, but, but I want to be clear this morning. I want to be clear this morning for us that this way of living, this way of relating, it's not who you are, Christian. It's not who you are, church. It's not even remotely close to who you're supposed to be. So who are you? Who are you, Christian? Who are you, church? I see a hand going up, so I feel like I've got an answer there. <laughs> well, friends, if I could answer this and give you a really short synopsis, and we could unpack this for minutes, but I believe that you and me, as believers in the Lord Jesus, are Christ's presence. We're Christ-present. And what I mean by that is that you and I are called to be the presence of Christ through the Spirit of Christ who lives within us. And if we live in that way, if we take up that mantle of being Christ-present, what we begin to see is not only our identity, but our very mission which flows from It's to show people that there's a better way to live. There's something good and beautiful and true that comes from a relationship with the risen Christ. But there's something good and beautiful in this thing called the church. But it leaves us with a question How do you get there? If that's the vision, if that's the picture, how do we become that? Well, this morning I want to answer that question with three ways, like any good Presbyterian. We live by the Spirit, we live with a purpose, and we live with belonging. So, Spirit, purpose, so let us jump in to chapter 1, and we pick up chapter 3 in this text, and, and we're going to get to how it connects. We want to look at what's, behind, what's coming in front of us, but we pick up in chapter 1 of our text, and, and Paul writes this, but I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh. You may be here this morning, and that may be a little, a little bit unfamiliar language with you. You're trying to think of what does Paul mean by... Okay, you're not a spiritual person, but you're a fleshly person. Well, the word there kind of encapsulates, or if you were to look up the word in its its intended meaning, it would mean something like this. This this fleshliness is is something like an unchecked impulse. It is something like this unchecked desire, this this desire that can become, if you allow it, to be all-consuming. It's a graceless impulse. It's who you are left to yourself. It's the worst parts of you that you want no one to see and that you work really, really hard to hide. Or perhaps you don't. It's a different conversation. And Paul says, you are people like this. You're fleshly people and not people of the Spirit. What does the flesh look like? Well, we could turn to all different places in Scripture, but if you want to go home today and read Galatians 5, I encourage you to do that. But there's all kinds of characteristics about what the flesh looks like spiritual pride, greed, animosity, jealousy, fits of anger, and the list goes on and on and on. And Paul says, this is not who you're to be. Though I can't address you as spiritual people, I should, I ought to be able to address you with spirit, as spiritual people. We ought to be, Paul says, people of the Spirit. <clears throat> people who are maturing in the Spirit. Well, what does that look like? Well, if you back up with me and look at the very end of chapter 2, verse 16. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? Listen to this. But We have the mind of Christ. We have the mind of Christ. He says that when you are growing in spiritual maturity, when you are growing in being a spiritual person, you, you become, you possess the very mind of Christ. You begin to think and reason and interact like Jesus. But as we're going to unpack in Corinth, this is not the situation even a little bit. Instead of being a Christ-like people, the church in Corinth is riddled with an unruly desire and a graceless impulse of the human heart, to use that definition. That is that fleshliness. Paul tells us this. What does that begin to look like in the church? What does that begin to look like? It says, well, for while there is jealousy, in verse 3, and strife among you, you are not of the flesh because you are behaving what? In a human way, you might think of that as a fleshly way, in your natural state. So for the church, to be, uh, to be unspiritual, or to be fleshly, or to be, or to be human, is, is a pe- it means that you are a people who are jealous, that, that you live in this chronic state of jealousy and envy, and, and what we might call today infighting, right? Or as Paul says in, an, in another book, you, you are biting and devouring one another as some of you may know this and many of you I don't suspect you do but my wife Whitney and I are parents to two uh, wonderful children uh, one Zoe who is soon to be five and Oliver who is somehow now almost 11 months um, and my kids in many ways couldn't be different we'll see you know time remains to see if Oliver will catch up to his big sister if he were to come over to Hartland this morning uh, probably just a few minutes ago and you were to listen to us sing the doxology, which we do every Sunday, my daughter is the one uh, who leads the choir. Uh, we don't have a choir. We just lead the whole church. So you can actually hear her over everyone. She is a girl Throughout who... The <laughs> what's that? Throughout the church. Throughout the church. Yeah, you might be able to hear it out the other end of the building. <laughs> so Zoe is a girl who loves loves the attention. She loves to be the center of attention. She loves she loves she loves loves to be noticed and she's got energy and and she's got this charisma that when she walks into a room she says you're gonna notice me and you're gonna love me or I'm gonna make it (laughs) and and when she as she was growing up and really until about 11 months ago Zoe had Whitney and I's full attention and she used every ounce of our full attention and then in August of last year, Oliver was born. And all of a sudden, things begin to change. As many of you know, with multiple children, all of a sudden, this, w- this little girl who loved and was, was used to being the center of attention, all of a sudden had to share. And we begin to see things like jealousy cropping up between my four, almost five-year-old daughter and her newborn baby brother. It might surprise you to say that jealousy and envy creep up around our house a little bit as we have to share attention and share toys and and even share some cuddle times with my wife. And Zoe doesn't like this. And there begins to be this this disunity, this jealousy, and almost this division between her her and her her younger brother. We come into the Corinthian church, and Paul speaks to this division, this disconnectedness, this infighting that, that often is wrapped up not in, in so much in, in being a first or second born, but rather the division that's wrapped up in, in Corinth is, is often who you were attached to. Who did you follow? What school of thought were you with? Did you have the right set of ideas? Were you a part of an in-group? Were you an insider? or Were you an outsider? And if you had the right position, if you had the right place within the city and the world, You were doing okay, but if you didn't and you were on the outside, perhaps you begin to get a little bit jealous and a little bit envious of those who were on the inside. And these attitudes, these characteristics, this insider-outsider, this jealousy, this division, it began to tear the church apart. And Corinth, the church in Corinth, here a bit of interesting note as I was studying, it actually became so well-known for its sin. It actually became so widely known in such a pervasive way that there was a new word added to the Greco-Roman dictionary. A new word in the Greek. And it said this, when you were sinning, when you, when you were giving yourself to sin, you were told that you were living like a Corinthian. When you were sinning, you were told that you were living like a Corinthian. I want to pause here for a minute. If you get a word added, like think about this in the English language. If, if you were to live in such a way that you get a word added to Webster's Dictionary because of your behavior that now <laughs> is adopted by the entire English-speaking world, you you got to think that that there's you're not doing anything half hearted. Like, you're going full bore. And so to be in Corinth meant, to be even in the church in Corinth meant you were doing something pretty intense and pretty severe. You were sinning in some pretty bold and provocative ways. All right? But all this was beginning to make a mess of the world and the church. And Paul says, friends, church, this is not of the Spirit. This is not maturity. This is not making much of Jesus. This is not who you are to be. This is not why Jesus called you. This kind of living, church, is, is infantile. It's immature. And church, I would say the same to us. If we're living with jealousy and envy and strife, infighting and, and biting and devouring one another, and fleshliness, it's the kind of behavior you'd expect from a child, but not from someone who's been gripped and changed with the Holy Spirit. right? It is something that we have to own. It's something that we need to change. But there's another in- issue, really, as you think about who you were following, and Paul says this, the spiritual maturity, it shows up in, this, in whom you're following. And so imagine that there's a church meeting showing up. You gather here this morning, and, and you begin talking to one another about your week, and, and then all of a sudden the conversation switches. It doesn't switch to, tell me about your relationship with Jesus, or tell me about your family, tell me about your walk or your time in, in God's word this week. Is it, it looks more like this. So, who do you follow, Paul, Tripp, or fill in the blank? Is it Paul or Apollos? Who is it that is your teacher? Who is it that is your master teacher? Who are you following? Much like our cultural moment, the Corinth, or the churches in Corinth, and really Corinth, the Corinth as a city whole it fell into this trap of a cult of personality. And perhaps maybe you, you know what I mean by that, but, but there was a sense in which they followed people so intensely to a place that they almost deified. They almost raised them to a place of godlike status. And in the, in the, in the process, there was divisions and factions that formed and slowly tore apart the church. And I fear that in our day, we too have fallen into a similar trap. We live in a world, and particularly in a Western evangelicalism, where if you look at the stats, we spend thousands and thousands of dollars on books, resources, conferences, websites, sermons from our particular people, from our particular authors, particular favorite preachers or speakers. We give in to a celebrity culture. If we, we have a question, we've got to say, well, what, is, what does this person have to say about it? And if they, if they say something about it, well, that's gospel. We elevate these men and even these women to a place that is reserved for only God alone. You see, friends, we fall into this cult of personality in our own right as well. And don't get me wrong, I'm indebted to authors and speakers and writers. I'm, in, I'm indebted, and I'm not encouraging us to throw them out in some carte blanche sort of way, but, but it is worth considering. And I do want to ask you just to consider have you, are you, following, with, following someone with such a passion, with such an intensity that, that, that if they were to say something, you treat that as gospel? Are you giving yourself to someone or to something more than you are to God alone? Are you giving yourself to someone who is a fallible man or woman shot through with sin more than you are to God. And we don't even have time to get into the talks about our modern world. We talk about issues of politics or other things that divide us here in the church. We could probably de- dedicate a whole other sermon series to that, but we won't today, because I don't have that authority. You know, we can ta- talk to Rick about that. I'm sure he'd love that. But this division, this faction, friends. It, it is tearing apart the church and, and I, if you've never read the book uh, Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis I would encourage and commend you to do that but there's, there's this little line tucked in with the dialogue and, and Lewis writes this in this interaction between, between uh, Wormwood and his protege. I think I warned you before that if the patient can't be kept out of the church he ought to at least be violently attached to some party within it. Think about that. If, the, if Satan can't keep you out of the church, if he can't keep you out of the gathered fellowship of the saints, C.S. Lewis would write that the next best option is to put you into a place within the body where you are cut off from people in the body because you have a right way and a wrong way, because you have an ideology that is different from those around you. And Jesus becomes a less important creed and the blood of Jesus becomes less important than other hobby horses that you may share but friends this is not who you are to be this is not why Christ died on the cross and shed his blood this is below our calling and our dignity friends we were to be a church we are to be we are to have a life that is not known for its division and its partisanship but for its unity and its peace not to be known for its animosity, but by its love for one another. For those of you maybe here or perhaps people in your life who, who do not yet know Jesus and you see the church kind of coming apart, maybe whether it's here in this body or, or you watch it across the media or wherever you see it and you see the church and church leaders coming apart at the seams, hear me say that this is not how the church is supposed to be. This is not who the church is supposed to be. And and I might go far to say that if if the story of Christ coming back and making all things new is true, it will not be how the church is forever. The next thing that we see is that we're called to live not only by the Spirit, but we're called to live with a purpose. To live with a purpose. If I were to ask you this morning, what is your purpose? What is your purpose? Why are you here? Why do you exist? Why do you get out of bed every morning? Author David Brooks asked a similar question to readers to better understand as he was getting ready to write a book called The Road to Character. And he wanted to know, what is is it that gives shape and meaning to your life? Why are you here? And what he begins to find out through all of his research sounds really profound. And he says this, Who you are, that is what you live for, what you build your life upon or around, not only has a profound impact for your life, but actually reveals your very purpose or your believed purpose for life. And we come back into into our text, into verse 5, and and Paul, he asks a similar question. He attempts to answer this question for us, and he writes this, What then is Apollos? What then is Apollos? What then is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. As the letter begins to unfold, it becomes increasingly clear that, that Paul's desire is, a ha- is to, for, for he and Apollos and for the church to have a purpose that is not self-defined, not self-derived, but rather it is attained and defined by God. Your purpose, Paul wants to say about himself and others, is that you would would be all about God's grace and all about God's glory, that you would be all about the reasons God has called you to live and to breathe and to have your be. It's about God. It's about his glory, his work in your life and in the world, Paul says. Even to the point of saying, rather than being about me, it's about God. And friends, this was a very, very different posture than the, the, larger, than the larger culture in Corinth. Paul was very different than that. He was not seeking his own glory, but rather the glory of God. Recently, I, I have been, I've been watching a newly released documentary series, and, and it's on the life and ministry of a man by the name of Warren Jeffs. And maybe if you're unfamiliar, Warren Jeffs was the self-proclaimed uh, leader of the fundamentalist Latter-day Saints. And as I watch in this series, as I watch the stories of this man, and I begin to clearly see the problems that arise, not only in the sect and the cult that is known as the fundamentalist Latter-day Saints, but I begin in particular to watch under Jeff's leadership, or so-called leadership, the problems that exist and arise. I begin to see the fear and shame and manipulation and intense control of a man who is not interested in, by all appearances in God's glory, but in his own. He's not really interested in kingdom and gospel going out, but he is interested in him being lifted up on a pedestal to the point and to the degradation of those who would follow him. And as I watch this, this this kind of self-promotion, this kind of glory-seeking, though it may not look as sinister as Jeff's, uh, it has become all too common in our churches. We want to build our platform. We want to build our ministry. We want to build our brand. Paul says this is not who you are this is not why God has called you this is not your purpose you are to be God defined God is to call and define your purpose and, and what is more you are to build upon a foundation a foundation in verse 11 he tells us what that foundation is that foundation is nothing more or nothing less than Jesus Jesus Christ, the foundation. The very thing that you're to build your life and the church around. And if this is our aim, friends, if this is what we are to be about, what this means is that if it we're to be a church that is built upon Jesus, we have to be very aware and very careful of the things that we might choose to build our life or ministries around or the life. You see, we are called to build our life around Jesus. And when you think about life inside the church, if if the church is to be built around Jesus, I think what it means for us is really this. I want you to really consider and pray whether the men whom you've called to lead you have that vision. Do the men whom you've called to lead have a spiritual vision, a God-defined vision that exists for his glory and existing to build upon Jesus and the hope of the gospel, or are they trying to build upon any other number of things? But outside of the church, which is where you spend most of your existence in the everyday reality of life, what foundation are you building your life on? You see, you are a part of the church. We are the church gathered here, but just in a few moments, we will be the church that is not only gathered, but now sent and scattered. And what are you going to build your life upon? What what is going to give your life meaning? And are these things going to help build and further God's mission in our city and world? I want you to think of it this way. We currently live in a, a financial climate Recession numbers are, are higher than they've been in quite some time. We just entered a bear market last week, and all of this, this marketplace, and, and the market is full of all of these, these fears and anxieties. And, and we might be tempted, for those of you who are in the market, or maybe that's part of your vocation, They might be, it might be in, it tempted to, to cut corners. You might be tempted in your business or in your investments to, to cut corners just to, just to fudge the numbers a little bit or to do something just a little bit off just throw your integrity out because your earnings reports and, and your projections don't look all that promising as a parent this morning how easy it is to react out of anger and fear and and frustration rather than getting to the heart of your child's behavior I know that I'm probably meddling and I'm, I say that to my own self here but how often friends as families how often as families and neighbors do we say I want to follow Jesus so much so that my neighbors actually see my faith, right? I don't have this privatized faith, but I actually want, to, I want my neighbors and those around me to see my faith and see that I follow Jesus. But in reality, what ends up happening in, a day-to-day, in our daily life in a, in a given week is that we find ourselves absolutely exhausted. After hours, countless hours at the office, or because we just finished our fifth practice of the week or our fifth activity of the week, we're too tired to give any more. We can't give any more. And we certainly can't give any to neighbors. And we certainly don't have much of Jesus to give. Right. And it may seem subtle, but friends, your purpose, if you are to build your life upon Jesus, is to let him to define everything about your existence. Your time, your money, your energy, your priorities. it. Because here's the truth. The foundations other than Jesus... Other than Jesus, as Paul tells us in verse 13 and 14, there's going to be a day when they're laid there. There's going to be a day when it gets revealed, and it's worth asking yourself, when that day comes, when it is revealed, what will your foundations be shown as? What will they be? Will they be Christ or will it be something else? What is your foundation? And friends, I know that it's easy, it's, it's easy for me to say that up here and I want to be very clear. I'm asking these questions because I asked them of myself first, and I'm even asking them of myself today. Friends, I, I get this right probably more often than I'd like to admit to you today. But there's a, a, a joint struggle that I'm calling us to as the body of Christ. I don't want the things of my life to become a hindrance. I don't want my, my desire for control or, or my desire for material comfort to get in the way of my following Jesus and my effectiveness for him. But I do want to stop here for a minute and, and, and speak to you, those of you who might be prone towards perfectionism, those of you who might be prone towards, I've got to get everything right, and if I don't get everything right in a black and, black and white sort of way, then I get nothing right. It's possible that you just heard my words. Be all about Jesus and be about nothing else, and, and you, you, you feel this anxiety welling up in you, like in your stomach or in your mind, and, and you're, you're, you're beginning to think, okay, what am I doing wrong? You're beginning to make your list. What am I doing wrong? And how do I do to fix it? How can I get it right? And friends, I want to relieve you from that anxiety, if I may, and just say it's not about you and your own power getting it right, but it's about God's help in the Holy Spirit. It's about inviting Christ and the Holy Spirit into the gaps in your life. And finally, the last thing that we speak of is, is living a life with belonging. We're called to live a life not only with the Spirit, not only with purpose, but with belonging. I remember the day that that this, that I I had tried out for little league baseball. I was in the third grade and I grew up uh, I grew up watching the Atlanta Braves on TBS every night. I would sit at the foot of my nanos bed and I began to get in, I was in love with baseball. I was in love with, with the players. I was lo- in love with these larger than life figures, and I said to myself, "That's that's what I want to be." And so my mom decided to sign me up for little league tryouts in the third grade. And so I stood there on a Saturday morning shoulder shoulder to shoulder with a handful of other boys, and they finally called my name, and I took turns doing what you do in middle league practice. You you showed them how you can hit. You showed them how you can field or if you can catch a ball. And I'm going to be really honest with you. I was a pretty decent fielder. My hitting was abysmal. (laughs) But I left that practice, and I knew that even though I wasn't as good as the boys who had been playing t-ball since they were, like, this tall, I knew they had to pick me. I wanted them so badly to pick me. And a couple days later, I got a call from a coach. uh, And he said, I want you to join my team. And I was elated, because in that moment, I felt like I mattered. I felt like I belonged. Now, to be clear, the coach was my best friend's dad. (laughs) So we'll leave that for you to see. But he told me, nonetheless, that he wanted me on his team. And it was an incredible experience, because in spite of me, the team was really, really good. So it was good to kind of tag along on the coattails. But we come into this, this back, back half of the chapter, in chapter 3, and, and Paul speaks of this belonging this way in verse 16. He says, Do you not know that you are God's temple and the Spirit of God dwells in you? And then he comes down to verse 21. So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours. I belong to you. Whether Paul, or Apollos, or Cephas, or the world, or life, or death, or the present, or the future. All are yours, and you are Christ's, and Christ is God's believer in Jesus. Do you hear what is true about you this morning? Do you hear what God just said, what your father just said to the apostle Paul? Not only is the very spirit of God living inside you, making you holy, making you set apart, showing you that you are loved. He is your guarantee of your inheritance. But as Paul said, you have a belonging because you belong to Christ. I didn't plan this. But one of my bedtime rituals with my children and quite possibly one of the favorite things i do at, at, when i get the opportunity on at night is i i take my children in my arms and i i sing hymns with them and one of the, the hymns that i sing with my son and my daughter is be before the throne of god above uh it's a beautiful hymn it's one of my favorite hymns and and i love the hymn because it, it says this in this particular lyric that we sing My name is carved and my name is graven on his hands and my name is written on his heart. And I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me to depart. My friend, child of God, believer, beloved of the Father, this is what it means to belong. This is the belonging that you possess in Jesus. And this is true of you. Regardless of what the world says about you. Regardless of what maybe even you say about you. What God says about you is that you belong to him. And because you belong to him, because you are his, what does it mean for you? I'll tell you this. If you begin to really believe it and rehearse it and practice it day in and day out, if you belong to Jesus, it frees you to be a fool in the world's eyes. You see, the Greco-Roman world, and in particular Corinth, loved to pursue wisdom. But in Christ, you're free to be a fool. You're free to look foolish to a world who doesn't get you and looks at you like you're peculiar because you're following a dead prophet. You're free to do things differently. You're free from needing to be impressive or to have all the answers because you do not belong to the world but to Christ. You don't have to put your trust in men, no matter how persuasive they may be or how they may benefit you, because you have a better belonging in Jesus. But it leads me to the question Do you belong? Do you belong to this family? To this Savior? To this King? Have you come to a place where you realize that it is your sin that keeps you from a holy God? And it is only through this King, it is only through Christ that you can have this kind of belonging because of His life and His death and His resurrection on a cross. You Have an opportunity to belong. And if this is not your faith, if you don't know this kind of peace and this kind of security, I'd love to talk to you more about what it means to belong to Jesus. Or I'm sure your parents would love to talk to you. But friends, my prayer is that we would be a people who are known for love, for grace, for peace, for unity we would be a people who are known as the church and we can be a blessing to this world so that Christ might be exalted for his glory alone. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you are a good and gracious God and we thank you for your love. We thank you that you in Christ have given us a great word, a great hope. Father, we just commit this text to you and his words to you. Father, may you help us to remember what we need to remember and to forget what we need to forgive. And would you change us? We pray this in Christ's name. Let me invite you now to take a few moments to meditate on the words read and spoken.